Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Please note, this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. Hi, I'm Amy Tan. I am the author of The Bonesetter's Daughter and, more recently, the librettist for the opera of The Bonesetter's Daughter. And we're going to be reading from a book called Fate, Luck, Chance on the making of the opera. With me today is Stuart Wallace, and I'll let him introduce himself. I'm Stuart Wallace. I'm the composer of The Bonesetter's Daughter, the opera, and have had the privilege to work with Amy these last four years, making the opera and living it often. The book Fate, Luck, Chance is about collaboration, and I would say that the best parts of my life as a composer are about the collaborations I've had, and these four years have been the most extraordinary that I've ever had. The book is actually by Ken Smith, and he did a number of interviews of um, various people with the opera, and especially with Stuart and me, um, and wrote a, a number of the essays. It really ties it together, what this is as an experience that involved a lot of fate, luck, and chance. So we're going to read a section from that toward the end of the book about the collaboration, and this took place in the way of conversations and interviews that Ken put together. I should also say that the conversations in the book were assembled by Ken from many, many conversations, but the feeling is that you're actually sitting at the table with all the participants experiencing the process as it happened. Fate, luck, chance. I've been wondering, Amy, when you hear your words set to music, do you feel that the emotions get heightened? I think I'll need to hear the opera all the way through before I can answer that. It's like reading only part of a short story. A story deserves to be read from the beginning to end in one breath. And an opera is very similar. Once I see the whole thing from start to finish, that will define the emotional experience to me. Well, but even when you hear fragments of the piece, you respond emotionally. Well, yes. I've been very moved emotionally. I was even cheerful, I should probably add. I was struck by how beautiful it sounds and could feel each emotional point as it was happening. But being in the moment isn't everything. There's a shape, a build-up, an arc of the story that has to mount. It's like orgasm. You can't just jump to the high points. You have to have a build-up. <laughs> Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> what about hearing your words in the mouths of other people, like when Zhang or Ning sings your text? Does it hit you in the way you'd expect, or is it surprising? It's interesting that we've been talking so much about music and text. I never think in terms of text. I think of writing in terms of words and voice. And to me, the voice is the most important thing in anything I write. That's probably the number one question for writers. What's your voice? The voice is not fiction. The voice is what the person knows and believes, what they see, what they think about the world, the nature of the character, and how they've been shaped by history. All of this goes into the voice. It's not the voice that's on the page, but the voice is the source of every word. Whenever I start to write, I have to know the voice before the words will come. 
So when I hear an actual physical voice singing my words, that becomes the personification of my internal voice. The wonderful thing about opera is that the singer's voices are so refined, so nuanced, so full of resonance. The story in any opera has to have emotional resonance, and an opera singer's voice has to have that physical quality. Well, that sounds like something you've been thinking about for a while now. The first thing I think about when I start an opera is, what's the sound world, the universe of the piece? Each opera is its own world, and while it's all grounded in the voice of the composer, each one has its own unique qualities and quirks. But what I originally meant, Amy, what did you think the first time you heard your words sung? The first time I heard them sung, I was overcome with self-consciousness. I kept thinking I should have done it better. I can't believe they're singing this. I was fine with it on the page, but I'm embarrassed now that it's out there in the ether. The story is a very close emotional experience to me. It's true to my own life. And when things happen in the opera that are different from what really happened... I have to ask myself, is it different because it should be different for the sake of the story, or different because the emotion doesn't seem to be right? This doesn't mean you have to have lived my life to enjoy the opera. Serena said that the first time she heard the music played through, and Serena's the person who uh, got this whole thing going as our executive producer, she had to leave because she was so emotionally overwrought. It reminded her of her own relationship with her mother, except that they never had the same resolution before her mother died. Everyone has a different reaction, which is as it should be. Why does Madame Butterfly resonate so much with so many people? That's probably the one opera that gets people to love the art more than any other, but not every woman kills herself and sends her baby away. I've been thinking about the way we use Precious Sanity to help take the story back physically into a different world, and I feel a certain echo from the hundred secret senses, showing the membrane between past and present being rather fluid. It shows that the way you approached this project was not just as this particular story, but as a connection to all your stories. It was not literally recreating the book, but about preserving its spiritual and emotional truth while freely borrowing from your other work. In a way, it's the difference between writing your first piece and your sixth. The first contains all your ambitions, goals, and desires. As you go on, all of your pieces become a part of each other because they share the same DNA. If we decided to do this years ago, say when you'd just written The Joy Luck Club and I'd written Where's Dick, it would have been a completely different experience. I know I repeat myself a lot in my books, and sometimes I think it's a flaw. But when I look back and find a recurrent theme or characteristic, I realize it's also integral to that particular story. For example, in every single book, someone is making a journey to China that propels the story forward. It might be a physical journey, or it might be someone reading a letter, but every book starts in the present and goes into the past and comes back again to the present changed. It's a typical method of transformation. Just think of The Wizard of Oz. But I'd always done this even before I knew it was an accepted pattern probably because I really did travel to China. This was a literary approach that resonated particularly well with me because that's how it happened in real life. When I start to write, I feel like I become my mother or whoever the character is. I have to become that character. That's exactly what I have to do when I compose, perform the characters or channel them in some way 
that I have to find in music. The composer is like the director in a film because you dictate the tone and the rhythm of the way things will happen in time and space. And like a director, I have to get possessed with what I know to be the character. Because of the medium, it's a couple steps removed, but the idea is the same. Feeling the emotions is a large part of it. But when I'm in the middle of writing a scene, I have a sense of looking to the left and right and seeing what I'm wearing. I have to know what the temperature is, and I can change the scene on command, which is something I've learned from my dreams. If I don't like a particular dream I'm having, I can change it just by looking down at my shoes. When I look up, the perspective will be entirely changed. That sounds like The Wizard of Oz again with the ruby slippers. I don't actually click my heels, but to change the perspective, all I have to do is look down. Once I learned to control my dreams that way, I realized that it was a great metaphor for life as well as fiction. Amy and I didn't have many fights, but she was concerned about Precious Auntie cleaning the blood from Chang's dick off of the dragon bone before she gives it back to Young Lu Ling. I kept saying, I know you're a good Chinese girl who's concerned about hygiene, but we really don't have time to worry about the dick blood. (laughs) It wasn't a cleanliness thing. It was an emotional thing. But I was really concerned for a while about your and Shijang's obsession with destruction. Shijang is our director. For the longest time, my draft contained the two scenarios at the end of Act 1, and the boys' version went like this. Blood pours out and wipes out everything. Stage is ruined. Patrons flee for their lives covered in colored water that stains very expensive velvet seats and designer clothes. Audience becomes chorus. Lawsuit, lawsuit. Stuart and Shijung's long-cherished wish fulfilled. Amy nervous but relieved she already signed liability waiver. Amy's virgin. More symbolic imagery of destruction, simple but more powerful than expensive and dangerous boys' version. Viewers move to tears but not angry and ready to kill opera stuff. Sometimes I'm not really sure I understand opera. Except the girl's vision prevails. Yes, the girl's vision (laughs) is the one you will see on this stage. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.